Nick, 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 can we put it together a highlight <laughs> roll of all of Chris's really bad puns? I think that I'm would sorry. Be does nice. does anyone have time to listen to all of them, Don? We can do it as a Christmas special. Oh my be, gosh! It, it will be really, really long. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the late health study as I am by what we do for Thanksgiving this year. Now, I know by the time this airs, Thanksgiving will have passed. And for those of you who are not in the United States or you probably don't celebrate Thanksgiving like we do, but I am really confused, guys. What do we just all buy Kentucky Fried Chicken this year or what do we do? Then we go to Whole Foods and get takeout. Oh, that's actually a really good idea. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, there yeah, must yeah. be, there must be places that do like the full Thanksgiving dinner. There's, there's a ton of places. There, there's dozens, and you need to support your local restaurant. Because I don't know what to do. Uh, Thanksgiving is my favorite food meal oh, of absolutely. the year. Oh, Me yeah. too. Oh yeah, absolutely. We did a uh, because you know the, the weather was so nice here over over the last weekend. We, we had my, my parents over and we did a practice Thanksgiving just in case the weather isn't good for the real Thanksgiving. And it was it was really good, but there was no football on. And it was <laughs> just wasn't right. Yeah. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. And I am here as always with Dr. Chris Gill. Welcome, Chris. Hey there, Matt. From the Department of Global Health. And once again, in our third chair is... Dr. Don Thea. Welcome, Don. I'm here. Also from the Department of Global Health. And uh, as a reminder, if you could all head over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And in particular, I do want to just plug that our PHX Winter Institute is coming up. This year in January of 2021, lots of really interesting programs going on. So there's uh, it's going to feature data to dashboards, lean management in healthcare, essentials of biostatistics with SAS JMP, and a free webinar on alcohol policy during COVID. So head on over to the website and check that out. Also, as a reminder, if you could head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating, that would be great as it helps others find us. So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effect of bariatric surgery on life expectancy. Then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about patterns of prescribing for the drug hydroxychloroquine during COVID. And then in our amazing and amusing segment, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or Chris will tell us about where we can adopt a pangolin. So let's get into segment one. We are going to talk about an article that looked at the effect of bariatric surgery on life expectancy. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Life Expectancy After Bariatric Surgery in the Swedish Obese Subjects Study by first author Lena Carlson of the Institute of Medicine and Health and Care Sciences at the University of Gothenburg. Some headlines on this one. So Physicians Briefing says bariatric surgery linked to longer life expectancy and obesity. MedPage Today says bariatric surgery boosts life expectancy long-term data show. And Eureka Alert says higher average life expectancy after obesity surgery. So Don, can you give us the rundown on this study, what they found? Oh, I thought Chris was going to review this. Oh, Chris, can Oh, I can do that if you want. No, I'm just kidding. I can do it. (laughs) Okay. Because I wanted, I was, I I was hoping Chris on the spot. I was hoping to have the opportunity to say the word "gompers." Gompers. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say that word. I'm going to. Chris, gonna you, Chris, your your gompers is showing. Thank you. Oh, I need to tighten my belt and exercise more. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so this study is a report, actually, of a second follow-up of a study that had previously been reported by the same group. This SOS. It's the Swedish obese. Subjects study out of Sweden. And previously, they had reported that there was a 27% decline in death after 11 years of follow up in this very group of subjects that I'm going to describe. And what they have done is they have put together a prospective cohort collected from 25 public health departments and 480 primary regional clinics throughout Sweden 
where men and women between 37 and 60 years of age with an elevated BMI, which was defined as 34 or above in men and 38 or above in women. So these, these, these people are obese. And the intervention group was surgical banding. This was not randomized. This was, these people were subject to surgery for their own purposes. But the intervention group had surgery, which consisted of gastric banding or vertical banded gastroplasty or a gastric bypass operation. There were approximately 2,000 um, individuals in the surgery group and about 2,037 individuals in the control group. And the control group was treated according to the standard of care, which is not including surgery. So it's exercise and diet and counseling. And if individuals in one of the respective groups got the intervention in the other group, so for instance, if the the individuals who got surgery had their surgery reversed, or if the individuals in the control group ended up having surgery, their follow-up was censored at the point at which they crossed over. They also included a reference group, which was randomly selected from the sort of demographic database that is kept in Sweden of, I think, the entire population, where they basically just included individuals who did not have an elevated BMI and likewise followed them over time to look for some of these same outcomes. The analysis was an as-treated analysis, as I, as I mentioned. So individuals would be censored if they got the operation in the wrong group or the operation was reversed. The analysis was a proportional hazards regression, and they controlled for age, sex, level of education, um, married status, smoking, secular year, BMI, history of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, insulin level, cholesterol, and a few other things. And the demographics and the baseline characteristics of the two groups were pretty well balanced as far as um, age, though the surgery group had a fewer number of individuals who had achieved a university diploma. They had a higher BMI of 42 versus 40 and a, a higher waist to hip ratio. They had more hypertension, more diabetes, and more total cholesterol and smoking. So there wasn't really good, exceptionally good balance between the the two groups at baseline. The reference cohort that I mentioned of individuals, of course, had a lower BMI by definition, and they had less hypertension and diabetes, as you would expect in a population in which obesity is less prevalent. So the BMI fell in the surgery group, and it did not fall in the control group. And it remained, the BMI remained low in the surgery group. It inched up a little bit over the years, but essentially it, it remained considerably lower than it was in the control group. And they're reporting on the results at 24 years after surgery and 22 years after the controls were enrolled in the study. So a really pronounced long period of observation. Mm -hmm. They also were remarkably successful at getting outcomes in terms of death. It was something like 99 and 100% in, in, in these two groups. And the bottom line is that in the surgery group, there were 457 deaths, which was equivalent to about 10 deaths per thousand person years. And in the control group, there were 539 deaths, which was equivalent to 13 deaths per thousand person years. And in the reference group, there were 125 deaths, which was equivalent to about 5.2 deaths per person years. And the hazard ratio in the surgical group in comparison to the control group was 0.77. So there clearly was a benefit in terms of lifespan when compared to the control group. And the hazard ratio in the reference group was 0.44. So really the bottom line is that this bariatric surgery seems to work and seems to allow these individuals to enjoy a longer lifespan. But even with the surgery, their lifespan was not as long as the reference group in which obesity never was an issue. Yeah. So so clearly there is, at least in terms of, of taking their findings at face value, a benefit associated with the with the surgery. So the the title of the study is around life expectancy and and not specifically around, you know, mortality, which is similar but not the same thing. So they did also report Adjusted median life expectancy for the surgery group was three years longer than the control group, but five years shorter than the general population, which I thought was, it's a a really concrete way to try to understand 
why it is that they had these two different comparison groups. Because in one case, you're comparing you know, to a, a similar population without the surgery. And in one case, you're comparing it to the general population. And so you get a better sense for sort of the, the differences in reference to different reference groups. Chris, what was your what was your take on this study? I thought the it was a very interesting study. I thought there are there are a couple parts of it that were sort of confusing to me up front. Mm-hmm. It, it you know the first one these are these are trivial I should say, but the yeah. first was that it, it took uh, them a long time to really categorically state that this was not a randomized controlled trial. They didn't actually say that until the discussion. So and I was it was like, so couldn't you just like said it? This is not an RCT. This is a case control. St- well, you know, this is a, a cohort study. What is it? It's a, a different exposure, it, it, right? It, no, it's a, it's a, it's a cohort study. Chris, the first the first note that I wrote is not randomized, and I wrote that because I spent so long thinking it was a randomized trial combined with a cohort, and then I realized no, it's not a randomized trial at all. It's just three cohorts. Right, it's a quasi experimental design in a way. Yeah, I don't if even you, think it was quasi experimental. Yeah, because it, we don't even know why they chose to do it or they didn't. Yeah, choose no, to do it was a purely observational it's a, study. It's a cohort study. No, so no, it, yeah. wait a Wait a second. They 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 did describe why they chose not to do it as an RCT, and that was that at the point at which they initiated this study long ago, twenty seven years ago, bariatric surgery was new, and they weren't as good at it, and they were they were seeing increased mortality and serious morbidity associated with these operations. So they didn't feel as if it could be ethically done. However, in the interim. We've gotten the the you know the the world has become a lot better and the you know the risk of death and the risk of serious complications has come down markedly and there have been RCTs that yes, have been right. another yes. situation. Yes, no, no, I, I I accept all of that. I, I I was just puzzled why they didn't they didn't opt for obs, you know making it you know stating it clearly stating it up perfectly front. obvious. Right. Like yeah. in the abstract, this is like a in the cohort title. study. Like in the <laughs> right. title, a cohort study. Yeah, long, you know, I mean, I, I think they could have done that. So the the other one that that I struggled to sort of understand methodologically is they didn't really explain very well how they did the matching. And actually, when you look at their table one, where you look at the cases of the controls, they're they're pretty darn well matched for most things. Not all, because they had a the the intervention group had a higher risk profile than the controls, but but it it did sort of make me think well. Is it a randomized control trial? And then it wasn't mm-hmm. until the discussion and and that that paragraph that you described just a moment ago that I was like, oh yes, it's it's not. How weird that nope. they didn't just say it. So with all that set aside, I thought it was it was interesting in in a couple of ways, and I I really just have two points. And so the first one is that I suspected after reading the description of the cohorts that the effect of the bariatric surgery could probably was probably a little bit underestimated because it seemed that the people who opted for bariatric surgery were on average quite a bit sicker than the ones who chose not to. Right. And, and so mm-hmm. that would make them fail at a higher rate. And so perhaps if it had been a randomized trial, you know, I'm speculating here, it would have looked a little bit better actually. So, but that's, that's speculation. And the, the, the second thing is that if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, you have this longevity curve for the reference, the reference population and then the curve for the people who didn't undergo bariatric surgery, which is much lower, and then the curve for the bariatric surgery people, which is in between those two other curves, as you would expect, but, but actually quite close to the curve for the people who didn't get bariatric surgery. You know, it, 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 it bought them a couple of years, three years perhaps, but, but the, the effect was, was less than I had been hoping to see. And so that makes you think, well, the average age of the people who did the surgery was like 47, so they have a lot of miles under the hood before they opt to do this thing. Does that suggest that if someone has morbid obesity in life, you know, in adult life, that, that to get the full benefit of bariatric surgery, you should probably do the operation as soon as possible rather than waiting mm-hmm. until they're almost 50? That, that, you know, there's only so far you can run the, the odometer back by doing mm-hmm. this surgery because you've had all that cumulative exposure to the metabolic syndrome and vascular mm-hmm. disease, and none of that is going to go away. You've added those miles permanently, and now you're putting yourself on a new trajectory. But to, to really add longevity, you probably want to do this earlier and not wait until years of, you know, attempted dieting and losing weight have failed to finally say, okay, this is our last resort. It shouldn't, it felt to me like this is saying it shouldn't be the last resort. It should be an earlier strategy. Mm. Yeah, of course we have no, we have no data to back that up, but I, I, in the sense that there haven't, as far as I know, been equivalent studies done with the intervention being done at a younger age. But 
but but I, I follow your logic and it seems to make sense to me. So another thing, though, you know, this and this is one of the complications of doing long term follow up studies. But, you know, these these surgeries were done between 1987 and 2001. And as they note very upfront in their limitations that the surgical techniques that are done in the study, as they say, are rarely used today. And so what we're what we're getting here, it seems to me, is a sense that the approach is beneficial, but we don't really know what the benefit is of doing similar surgeries today because the approaches are totally different and may have different effects. And the only way to figure that out is to start a new cohort now or, you know, five, you know, people who had the surgery five years ago and go from there and figure out, you know, what the what the long term benefits of a newer surgery. But you won't know that for 20 30 years, in which case the, you know, the, the effects may have, you know, the approaches may have changed yet again. And so it's, this is one of those things where you're always trying to catch up. It's really hard to do. Don't you think though, that at this point, it would not be ethical to do a, an RCT? No, no, I'm not, I'm not arguing for an RCT. I'm just similar cohort design, yeah. but done with a cohort of patients who were receiving mm-hmm. the surgery now, now that said, yeah. Don, clearly it would be unethical to do an RCT, but there were RCTs done, as you point out, that could have you could have done long term follow up on those people who were in the trial and might get a better sense. Because I will say, you know, the one thing that I methodologically, well, there were probably two things. One thing I wonder about methodologically from this study was, you know, was there potential for some residual confounding because. I just think this is a this would be a tough one to to totally remove mm-hmm. all the confounding. Mm-hmm. Not as bad as as you know the dietary studies that we look at where we you know we throw our arms up and we have no idea. But I suspect that there is some residual confounding in these studies just based on who decides, as Chris points out, who decides to get the surgery or who is recommended for surgery, particularly back in 1987, you know, through the early you know early 90s. So. That doesn't mean I don't think that the effects are real. I just think we don't know exactly what the effects are. Yeah, you know, there, there's there's an you know an aspect to this that makes clear how how very difficult it is to study this this procedure because you're looking at a you know a ten twenty thirty year horizon to know the ultimate benefit of that, and at the time you're waiting for the results, the techniques and the approaches and presumably all the sort of you know peri-surgical medical care that goes along with this is also evolving. It's a mm-hmm. little bit like that Johnny Cash song, One Piece at a Time, you know, where his car, you know, after 30 years comes out as this hybrid of all the pieces he stole over the decade of working for Chevrolet, you know? So... <laughs> I don't know that song. Oh, it's a great song. <laughs> oh, okay. How, so it's how, a classic country the... western song. So he, 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 he it's the, the story about this guy who works at a Chevrolet plant and he decides he wants to get his own Cadillac, but he can't afford it. And so he steals all the pieces to build the Cadillac, but he does it like by taking them out one piece at a time in his lunchbox and assembling them over slow motion, but it takes him 30 years to get all the pieces to build his Cadillac. And by that time, Cadillacs have changed multiple times. So the final machine is this weird sort of hybrid cyborg monstrosity of 30 years of Chevrolet designs all crammed into one car and like just the most bizarre looking vehicle one can imagine, you know, and it's kind of the same thing here where the surgery is changing over time. And so we're sort of like saying bariatric surgery, analyzing as, as if it's this one thing, but it's not this one thing. It's an evolving field. And the surgeries that are done in 1997 are different from the ones that are done in 2007. And I, I mean, absolutely. And not only that, even in, in 1987 or, you know, let's say mid 90s, there were multiple different procedures that are being aggregated in this exposure defined as bariatric surgery. And so there, there are these, you know, it's not clear whether if you separate it out by the different approaches over time, you might be able to, you know, tease out which ones were the most effective. That's right. The, so the other methodologic issue that, that I find, and this is more of a general concern with these types of, of cohort studies where you're trying to match people. And I, and I do want to just for the audience sake, just say you, Chris, you referred to cases and controls rightly, but this is not a case control study. It's a cohort study. So these are people who had the, the surgery or people who didn't have the surgery as the exposure. 
you know, it's very difficult to figure out what the what the zero time is for people who didn't have the procedure. You know, if you have the procedure, then we mm. know we start your follow up time at the moment of the getting the procedure. For those who didn't get the procedure, it's not always clear what the right time is to start the follow up time. In particular, how do you ensure that anybody who you know who who died related to the condition doesn't get excluded from the follow up because they couldn't get the the surgery, but you know because they're in the control arm, we don't we don't know that whether they ever would have gotten the you know would have been eligible to get the surgery or not, and so you just throw them out. And we know from lots and lots of work that that can lead to a substantial amount of bias. I'm not alleging that that happened here so much as I just found it difficult to figure out exactly how they defined what the zero time was for each of those comparison groups, not overall, but just sort of in relation to ensuring that that you don't end up with these, you know, what are are referred to as immortal person time problems, where you're just sort of excluding people who who died unintentionally. So, you know, that was that was sort of really it for me was the confounding and the and the zero time. But I still thought that it was reasonably convincing that something there there is clearly a, a benefit here. I'm just not sure I know exactly what it is, you know, what exactly it is. But I think we say that of of many studies, and I don't find that to be particularly unusual. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, it, it was it was interesting that, that with respect to that point, uh, Matt, because they they do say that the control group was matched. Yep. To the intervention group, but they never describe what the matching was. Mm-hmm. You know, and one might. One might, you know, think that they matched on age because that would be a reasonable zero time or semi, you know, quote, zero time, as as you're describing. You also might consider zero time to be the onset of obesity. You know, it could be that there are people that are obese have only been obese, even though they're 42 years old, they've only been obese for five years as opposed to 25 years. You know, and if it's 25 years, you've got a lot of pathology working for a long period of time and you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a different physiologic effect at that yeah. age. So it's, it's, it's even more complex, I think. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think, I think in that case, probably what you'd want to really know is not so much that you'd not, not so much that you set the zero time at, at the, the onset of obesity so much as you would want to want to, to assess whether or not durate or, or, or amount of time that you were, that a person was obese, it modifies the effect of the of the surgery, which I think is is kind of the question that Chris was was getting at in the beginning. You know, does does doing the surgery, which I now that you said now that I say it out loud, I realize would be completely confounded with age. So mm-hmm. you're probably right, Don, that age is 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 really where the where where it's at. So so if 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 you if you did know when the onset of obesity was, could you could you deal with that in the analysis? Well, you you could in that you could control for the amount of of time that a person had been obese prior to entering the study and and see whether or not that it was both a confounder and an effect modifier for sure. I still think you'd run into some problems with people who who died prior to surgery, though. You know, I suspect it's not a large number and and probably doesn't uh, isn't going to change the results that much. But but it's something to consider. Yeah, and it's entirely possible that if somebody is 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 really quite obese, that they could suffer some serious consequences of the obesity and end up dying of it prior to reaching the age of forty-seven or whatever the the entry age was here. So you know, even even searching for adequate controls would be biased because you will have lost the ability to enroll controls who were sort of on the worst end of the spectrum. Yeah. So true. Please. So a lot of methodological challenges here, but but overall, I still felt that I, I fell on the side of believing it. This is probably yeah. Correct. yeah. So did I. So did I. Yeah. Chris, now you want to you want to tell us why you would you were going to say the word Gompertz? Gompertz, right? So they 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 talk about this in the methods. They said, "I'll read it to you." You said we used the Gompertz proportional hazards hazards regression model, and I realized, as I often do when reading statistical methods, that I don't know what that means. But yeah, um, maybe the, you do. Uh, do well, you know a, yeah. I do. Well, Chris, do you know what a you know what a Cox proportional hazard model means? I, I do. What does Cox mean? Uh, it's a guy. It's Cox a statistician's name. Well, wouldn't you think that Gompertz is a, is a guy? Well, or right. Well, what's the what's the difference? Like what? What's, exactly. What's the, so, what's special about Gompertz versus like non Gompertz? Right. So so proportional hazards regression is a model is is a 
regression modeling approach for time to event data in which we assume that the effects of of whatever it is we're interested in are proportional to the underlying hazard function. In other words, the underlying risk of the event, which changes over time. And so we assume that that the effect is sort of a constant multiple of whatever that underlying baseline hazard is. And the nice thing about that is if you make that assumption, you don't need to know what the hazard actually is. And it just simplifies all the calculations. But in a lot, of, a lot of people would say that that assumption is probably wrong in a lot of cases, in which case the solution to that is fitting a model in which you estimate the underlying hazard using some kind of distributional function. And the function that they found fit best was this Gompertz distribution. So it's just an underlying distribution for the, for the hazard. Hmm. So sort of, now like that a, all of like a Poisson distribution, for example. Exactly. Or Weibull was another one that they is commonly used and they tested. So anyway, now that I have put all of our listeners to sleep, you can I, all I, wake I up. Love, I love Poisson regressions, though I do find them a bit fishy. Uh, I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> Nick, 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 can we put together a highlight <laughs> roll of all of Chris's really bad puns? I think that I'm sorry. Does, does anyone have time? To listen to all of them, Don. We can do it as a Christmas special. It oh my be, gosh! It, it will be really, really long. It would go on and on and on. And uh, speaking of going on and on and on, let's move on to our second segment, where we are going to talk about a, a paper on the increase in prescribing patterns for the drug hydroxychloroquine, which I'm sure our listeners mean? have heard of ad nauseum. It was part of the, you know. Uh, I almost want to say at this point, it's part of the culture war in the United States. Absolutely. In fact, if you've been taking hydroxychloroquine, you've experienced it ad nauseum. Oh, there you go. Well said, Chris. So this was a this was a paper published in JAMA in their news from the CDC, news from the Centers from Disease Control section. And, you know, this hydroxychloroquine is a drug that the president of the United States for a few more months has pushed as a both a prevention and a treatment for COVID-19. And this article basically documents that there has been this this increase in prescribing of this drug hydroxychloroquine over the the time period that, you know, this has come out as a potential treatment and prevention for COVID-19. The data is pretty clear that it's not particularly Effective. I mean, I suppose the jury is slightly out on. No, I would disagree on, with that statement. I think it's pretty clear. It well, does not work. Harmful, it does not, not work. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of some mild controversy as to whether in a very specific subset of a subset of a subset, if you do it at the right time, it might work. But I agree with you. I I think the data is pretty clear that this is is not an effective treatment or prevention. But and yet at the same time, you know, there's there what the CDC is reporting is that there's been a lot of prescribing of this drug. In particular, what's concerning is it's being prescribed by specialists who don't typically use the drugs. They say of those who typically would not prescribe hydroxychloroquine, drug use rose from rose to about seventy-five thousand plus prescriptions, prescriptions in yeah. March twenty twenty from 1,000 in February 2020, so an 80-fold increase compared to March of 2019. I think and it was that driven is, by ophthalmologists, anesthesiologists, is, and cardiologists. Yeah, so that was overall, but in particular, it was driven by these subfields, which, which there's no, as far as I can tell, logical reason why they would be prescribing these drugs, except for somebody going to them and saying, you can prescribe drugs. I want hydroxychloroquine, right? I mean, am I am That's I making that up? Absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. You, you know, you you would be astonished to find an ophthalmologist who had prescribed previously prescribed hydroxychloroquine once in the last twenty years. In fact, the, the, in fact, ophthalmologists should know better than to prescribe hydroxychloroquine because it has been shown to have potentially, in long term use, severe retinal side effects. So, ophthalmologists yeah. should, in particular, be sensitized to the fact that this drug though it may or may not be efficacious, is potentially harmful. Right. So the, the other concerning thing about this is there were, there were, the drug was in short supply, and there are, of course, conditions for which this drug is actually needed. And so this overprescribing of a drug that seems to be not effective in treating or preventing 
COVID-19 is being diverted with no, no expectation of benefit and preventing people who might actually need it from accessing it. So, you know, I mean, this falls in the category of so many of the things that we are disturbed by over the course of this, this pandemic. But, you know, I guess my question to you guys was, you know, could this, could this have been prevented? I mean, once the president of the United States starts arguing for this drug to be used and you get fringe, fringe, maybe not be the right word, but you get a, a, a very limited few number of, of epidemiologists and, and, and doctors arguing that it is effective when the evidence doesn't support it. How do we, you know, like with when we talked about the, the vaccine hesitancy, how do we how do we prevent things like this from happening? Is there anything we could have done differently? Well, we yeah, could have we... different presidents elected in 2016. Yeah, well, let's the let's look at the counterfactual on that one, Chris. Yeah. You know, Kimmy, Matt, one of the one of the really depressing things in in, in reading this report and and realizing how influenced that that our you know our ophthalmology cardiologist and other colleagues are to non-evidence-based decision making mm-hmm. that that they that they jumped to the conclusion that there was potential efficacy here when it was clearly not adequately proven with some risk associated with it and whether that was because they were being dunned into submission by their family and friends to write these prescriptions is it's kind of beside the point you know it, mm-hmm. it just i mm-hmm. i i I, di- I would not have expected it of our colleagues to be that susceptible to this kind of broad speculation you know you can understand it in the lay public but uh amongst people who are you know trained and, and well-versed in science and evidence-based decision making this was a complete outlier mm-hmm. so so let me ask you this question so my sense is that particularly in the era of drug advertising on television, that people go to their doctors all the time asking for prescriptions for very specific medications. And if they you know, push enough, they, you know, in some cases, may be able to get that medication prescribed to them, it, presumably as long as the provider doesn't think it's going to do harm. And so the question is, if this was not a, a pandemic situation, you know, is this the kind of thing where, you know, if it were, you know, just some other drug, which there was reasonable access to, and it wasn't causing, you know, people from being prevented from accessing this medication, you know, does this happen all the time, and we just don't pay much attention to it? And therefore, this is part of a a larger pattern? Or is this an isolated thing because of a pandemic? Well, I, I guess I would start by saying that, that there, there was probably a window uh, earlier on, where we were looking at just the original data coming out of the French study, the Raoul study, which I think has now since been thoroughly discredited. But it, it at, at the time, it had it was the only evidence available and seemed very promising. And the you know the situation was very dire. So I I, I want to say that I, I'd like to be somewhat sympathetic mm-hmm. um, and say that maybe some pattern of, of prescribing of hydroxychloroquine earlier on in that you know information free zone or, you know, infopenia uh, period, maybe was not so completely irrational. Uh, but the problem is that, that we've now gone long beyond that. And there have now been many studies, one after another, after another, after another, really showing hydroxychloroquine has no impact and possible harm, either as prophylaxis, as Don was saying, or for treatment. So, so that is, I, I think, I would, where I would start. And then the second one is that I, I've never seen the politicization of a medicine before. And that is, again, just such a bizarre facet of our current politics. Well, well, well hang on. I like you, so you wouldn't put antiretroviral therapy in the category of a drug that was, was highly politicized in the sense that it was, you know, activists were strongly okay. pushing for, for access? Okay. No, no. I, think, I, I take your point. But I think, it, I think there's a qualitative difference there because mm. the, the politics around antiretroviral therapy for HIV – were about access and yeah. Um, yeah, equi- yeah. E- e- you know e- equitable access. Yep. And here, that's that's not what we're talking about. People right. hydroxychloroquine is a dirt cheap drug. It's an orphan drug. You know, it's it's generic. It, it's not an expensive medication at all. So the issue is really who was writing prescriptions for whom, right? And and then so there was a sudden demand driven by 
Republican versus Democratic politics around the use of his medication. And that is such a strange thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Matt, you know, being somebody who has actually lived through the HIV epidemic, the early stages of the HIV epidemic, there was a lot of pressure being put on by ACT UP and the gay community on Tony Fauci and on the yeah. NIH yeah, yeah. to get access not only to the drugs, because the, early on, there were very few, if any, drugs that were proven, but it was really access to clinical trials. And for the NIH to, to, to really step up the, the number of clinical trials and the number of medications that they were testing and to have there be really good access to being involved in those clinical trials. So to me, that's a completely different perspective. That, that's really, let us participate in generating the science and it, that's totally different than this situation where the president no, no, 100% is, is agree. I, and killing a drug that has no proven efficacy. No, no, no. I hundred percent agree. I was only, I was only reacting to the idea that a drug had, ne- you know, drugs had never been politicized before, for which I yeah. think, you know, drugs are politicized all the time. But I, I agree with you that in, in, not in this way, this is, yeah. this is an incredibly unusual way, though I would say, you know, one other one other analogy might be, and it's not a drug so much as it's screening, whereas there are, you know, there are people who believe that screening for certain, let's say, cancers absolutely save their lives. And then if there is evidence that suggests that such screening programs aren't actually doing much to save people's lives, it becomes a, a political football because you have given people screening that they believe worked for them and they believe that you know, he's going to save lives, even though the evidence doesn't actually suggest that it's very hard to, to go back. So, you know, I think there are situations that are, are similar, but, but to go back to the, the main point uh, around this particular situation, is there, is there any positive in this, in that obviously it's mostly negative, but is there any positive in that the change in prescribing was driven almost entirely by these three subspecialties, which is to say that those who actually probably would be doing the majority of caring for people with COVID were not using these drugs. Say that again, Matt. Well, I, I guess what I'm just saying is that that because the there is this large increase in the prescribing, but it wasn't by people presumably who are actually treating people with COVID. It suggests that those who are who were actually you know, caring for COVID patients were not buying into the hype and were not, you know, prescribing hydroxychloroquine to people in hopes that it would work. They were following the evidence, presumably. Well, I, you know, from this report, I don't know that we know that. I don't mm. know that. I mean, they're, they're, they're reporting these three specialties as being the, the most prominent prescribers, but that we, we don't know that general practitioners and internists and, you know, others we don't know that they weren't. So it's entirely possible that there was uh, you know, a marked increase in prescri- prescriptions from those specialties also. Yeah, though presumably not to that to that degree if those were the ones accounting for the majority of it. But I, I take your point. We don't actually we don't actually know. All right. Well, mm-hmm. other than that this is this is clearly a huge shame. Anything else anyone wants to wants to add before we move on? Well, I want to I want to end with a famous Latin quote from Cicero, which is to be ignorant of the past is to be forever a child. And I think there's a modern adaptation of that, which uh, comes from our Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, which is there's very little to be learned from the second kick of a mule. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Fair yep. enough. Yep. I'll buy that. All right. Well, let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And I'm going to I'm going to go first. I've got I'm hoping just hoping that my memory isn't failing me. One of us didn't already do this one. But uh, I, I I was intrigued yeah, I by did. this. We did. Oh, yeah, man. I, did. I, I, I feel like we could say that. No, it has to do with uh, the the uh, it's the British Medical Journal's Christmas edition uh, oh. answering the. Answering the question, does pride come before a fall? A longitudinal analysis of older English adults. Did anyone did anyone do this one already? I don't, I, think, I don't so. think so. No, I don't Oh, thank remember. goodness, because my memory is totally failing me. So this was, uh, I was as our listeners know, the, the Christmas edition is, you know, full of, of studies that are real, but are making a humorous point. And so, you know, every, presumably people know the, the novel the, or the saying, excuse me, pride comes before the fall. 
And so they wanted to actually test whether or not this was true. And they had, they did secondary analysis of the English longitudinal study of aging. It was a, they had the data set available to them. It was a longitudinal study of older English adults and about 6,000 of them. And they also had data in this study on both, you know, falls, but also on a self-reported measure of pride at baseline. So Mm. they figured they would try to see whether or not pride did indeed come before the fall. And the findings, unfortunately, do not support the contention that pride comes before the fall. So unadjusted estimates indicate that the odds of reported falls were significantly lower for people who had high pride levels compared with those who had low pride levels, uh, odds ratio of 0.69. And the odds ratio remained after all their adjustment was partially attenuated. In fact, the confidence intervals were, were fairly fairly wide and did exceed one in their final model. So they do they do leave open some possibility that pride could come before the fall, but I think in the end, we're just gonna have to include that in fact, does not. So sorry to burst the bubble on that one. So I think that what they need to do is a reanalysis and see if pride becomes uh, during the summer. Pride I, comes during the summer? Yeah, before the Why fall. Would, Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that that's way. That's what I always thought that expression meant was that pride becomes pride, in the pride summer. Pride comes in the summer. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a really, really interesting way to look at that I had never in fact thought of. Yeah. I always thought All that right, pride Chris, came I always thought that pride became uh, preceded the fall. <laughs> Didn't he just no idea. what I said? <laughs> that pride precedes the fall. The Not pride. the summer. Isn't that what Don just said? <laughs> were you listening? Were you your phone's on mute? With 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 great attention, I was listening. Were you were you were you checking the internet? Were you checking the internet? Let it be light. Okay. <laughs> I think we had a bathroom break during my segment. All right. Oh, that's funny. Well, now that we know you are paying attention again, Chris, what do you got? All right. Well, I, I've got something very small and, and hopefully short as well. So many, yeah, many, many episodes ago, we talked about about the the fact that blue whales and elephants have more cells than mice. Yes, I remember that. Right. So it's not just that like a, a bigger animal has bigger cells, but there are more of them. And in fact, I, I think I, I said in that episode that a blue whale's cells or an elephant's cells are about the same size. So they're just many, mm-hmm. many, 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 many more of them. And I thought I that this was that. kind of a universal truth, but it turns out it isn't. Now, check this out. Hmm. So these guys who published in PNAS talk, and the name of their paper is called Smaller Salamander Species Are Associated with Smaller Genomes. Hmm. And, and so it turns out that salamanders, you know, come in all different shapes. There's like giant salamanders and there's really teensy-weensy salamanders that are about the size of a penny, except skinnier. And, and so... A salamander of any different size has to have sort of complex, you know, features and functions and capacities and all of that requires organ structures and anatomy. And and when you're the, you know, you're the size of a matchstick, that's obviously harder to pack all that in, that stuff into that salamander than if you're a giant African salamander who's like a foot across. So how mm-hmm. do they do it? And so these guys huh? actually sequenced the genomes of, you know, 70 different kinds of, of, of salamanders that they pulled out of out of a bunch of jungles somewhere and, you know, created lineages of them. And what they found is that the, the size of the cells themselves shrink as the salamanders get smaller. How about the size of the cell shrinks as a salamander gets smaller, like a mini salamander, the size of a, like a, what are those puntia nails that you use to tack up, you know, to hang a picture, have smaller cells than big salamanders. And the reason why is that the nucleus of the cell in particular, you know, occupies much of the space of the cell. And so the way that they have made the cells smaller is by making the the chromosomes more compact. And they've done that by getting rid of junk DNA, because you know, our our chromosomes are filled with all sorts of strands of non-coding, you know, material that just fill up the genome, but don't do anything. And so these little animals have become, to become more efficient and to sort of pack all that information and that function to a smaller, smaller space, have gotten rid of all that junk DNA and made their nuclei smaller so that their cells can be smaller. How about that? Ooh, cool. Hmm. Very cool. Yes. So, very, there very it is. cool. 
All right, so getting rid of junk is the way to get smaller. Right. It's a reminder of the saying by Quintilian, quid, quis, ubi, quibus, oxalis, cur, quimodo, and quando. Oh, stop, stop, stop. I was going to say the same thing. I was totally, <laughs> totally thinking that. Which but can you just remind our audience what that means? Grandstanding. Oh, sure. Uh, I'd be happy. <laughs> Who, what, where, with what, why, how, and when. That's what we do. That's our job. Totally, totally, totally was thinking the same thing. I think we thing. should all we have were, t-shirts we were, that say just that. We were absolutely on the same page on that one for sure. We, we could like maybe, you know, swap that out and put it in Latin instead of like, you know, uh, think, teach, do. I like it. I like it. I'll propose right, it to Don, the dean what, and see how he goes for it. Go for it. Don, what do you got? All right. I have a new hero. Is it Quintilian? Okay. No, it's not. <laughs> Is it no, Julius it's, 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 Caesar? Uh, sh- <laughs> Quasimodo? <laughs> Nick, could you turn off his mic? <laughs> Possibly Ovid. Are you done? Yes. All right, so I have a new hero. <laughs> and his name is Andre Geim. Okay, and Andre. He is a Dutch scientist who works in the Netherlands, and he has the singular distinction of having won both an ignoble award and mm-hmm. a Nobel Prize. Oh, no wow. way! That's Imagine impressive. That. Double Imagine dipping. that. <laughs> so he has this totally refreshing approach to science where he and his lab team have instituted a Friday night experiments where they are encouraged to go into the laboratory and do something completely unrelated to what it is that they are studying. And as a result of these Friday nights experiment of experimentation in the lab, his perspective is that it's better to be wrong than to be boring. So he encourages these people to sort of follow their nose. And there have there have been many attempts, but three major discoveries that have come out of these Friday night experiments. The first one was the one for which he won the Ig Nobel Prize. And what he decided to do was to try to figure out whether a very, very powerful magnet has an effect on things that we ordinarily don't consider to be have a charge. And so he was able to sort of drop water droplets through this very powerful magnet and suspend those water droplets in midair to have this anti-gravitating, oh, wow. levitating effect. But what he was known for and what, what he got the Ig Nobel Prize for was he did the same thing with a live frog. So he was able to levitate a live frog in this magnet for an indefinite period of time. And they've got a video of it. And it's the most remarkable thing to see. You see this live frog suspended in air kind of flailing about in various different ways. Trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Right, right. And then the the second discovery out of this group was that they were able to figure out and replicate how gecko foot pads work, which are a remarkable construction of nature because they have this incredible adhesive power and they have like no sticky stuff on their Ooh. on their pads. And it's like so how do they do it? Super Velcro. Well when you when you take an electron microscope and you and you bore down on the foot pads of a gecko, you you see these what they call stellae, which are like little fingers that crop up and you you if you focus down on the tips of those stellae, there are yet another set of stellae and another set of stellae until you get this incredible surface area on the foot pads of these geckos, so that when they come in contact with an extremely smooth surface, I mean they can walk up mirrors. Yeah. The surface area that's in contact with the surface actually takes advantage of Van der Waals forces. So these wow. intermolecular forces that when taken together over all of this huge amount of surface area actually bonds the foot pads of the gecko to the surface. And then they're very easy to break because all you have to do is sort of twist it to the side a little bit and it can then you know, can de- then dislodge. And so he made, he, he, he made tape that has these properties. And there's this whole new area of science that is looking at how to how to sort of commercialize these properties to the extent where eventually the thought is that there will be sneakers that will be anti-gravity boots that are anti that'll allow you to walk up a wall any wall yes it's absolutely amazing 
But the third thing that came out of these Friday night experiment nights, for which he won the Nobel Prize, was the discovery of graphene. And graphene, graphene. graphene is a is a form of carbon that is one atom thick, but okay, has incredible strength. So that if you were to take a graphene monolayer and put it over a, uh, a pail and have the weight of a truck bearing down on the, the graphene in the surface area of the point of a pencil, the graphene would be able to withstand that pressure. Huh. In addition, it's 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 quite close to being a not super super conductor, but a very incredible conductor, electrical conductor. And the way they discovered this was that he they they wanted to take some carbon and to make a graphene monolayer, and they ground down a piece of of carbon to the point where it was just dust, and they kept failing but they had scotch tape that was in contact with this dust and they kept throwing it into the garbage pail. And then they realized that if you take scotch tape and you apply it to a source of carbon and you tear it off, you essentially are creating a one atom monolayer of carbon and that's the graphene. And that's, that's, so what, cool. he, that's what he won the Nobel Prize for. Wow. And, his team submitted a paper summarizing their findings to Nature. The journal rejected it twice, which is such a common fate for historically path-breaking ideas that it could signal an unintended compliment. One referee said that it did not constitute a sufficient scientific advance, uh, which was cited wow. later by Geim in his Nobel Prize award-winning speech, which he called a random walk to graphene. That mm. is fantastic. That is, is that amazing? so cool. That is so cool. It, it actually is quite insp inspirational too. Yeah, he's my new hero. He's really yeah. I, mind, Plus, I think he's mine too. Can Plus, I he has a complete sense of humor about this? Can I mm -hmm. ask about more about about the the, the geckos and their yeah. their amazing footprints? Are, yeah. So, are, the way you were describing it almost sounded like a fractal. Is, is that is that a, a, an appropriate descriptor? Not in what I've read. I, I, I'm not sure how you would really bind the two together. You know, it's 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 really a matter of having an an almost infinite amount of surface area and contact between the two forces, at that, such that these extremely weak intermole intermolecular forces actually have a lot of sort of cumulative force right. that that keeps the the pad of the gecko foot in contact and adhesive to whatever surface it is. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing, cool. amazing observation. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at PropMadFox, or Don at, at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, and he won't answer it. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast. And Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. And remember, non omnia passamus omnis. Uh, again, I was thinking the same thing. We should end every episode that way. Illegitimatum non carverundum. There you go. We can't do all. We can't do it all. <laughs> e e pluribus unum. Bye. <laughs>